If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Christianity has been one of the dominant forces in European history. But according to historian Peter Heather, There's nothing inevitable about the religion's rise to become one of the most prominent parts of European life. In conversation with Emily Briffitt, Peter discusses his new book, Christendom, The Triumph of a Religion, which challenges the idea of Christianity being a monolithic and eternally successful religion and charts the changes it underwent between the late Roman and high medieval period that allowed it to flourish. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of Christianity, particularly between the late Roman period to the Middle Ages. But one of the things I really wanted to start by asking you is what inspired you to write your new book? Well, I've been teaching this stuff for, I hate to think how many, over three decades um, uh, in bits and pieces. And there's no kind of comprehensive overview done in recent years. There are lots of wonderful bits and pieces on particular areas, all of which I plagiarise shamelessly, of course. But uh, there's a kind of way in which the sort of big histories of this kind of period go back to the early 20th century when 
pretty much everyone, I mean, it's about European Christianity, and pretty much everyone in Europe is still Christian at the time that they are written. They're different kinds of Christians. They're not all the same kind of Christian. But you, when you're writing in that era, you're writing from a perspective that Christianity won, as it were, in the deep and dim ancient past and has carried on winning. Whereas we know now that actually active Christianity has lost its hold on the lives of lots and lots of people. Mm. The vast majority of the European population don't go to church and they don't. Uh, they might say they're Christian on censuses, but it usually means as opposed to anything else. Churches struggle to recruit membership. People don't go. They don't organize their lives around religious festivals. And it seemed to me that the perspective that this offers us is that uh, the old certainties that Christianity was bound to win no longer apply. And no one's taken that back, I think, to think about the sort of broad uh, run of events uh, and sequences of development which saw Christianity win in the first place. What it suggests, of course, is that Christianity might not have won. It didn't have to happen because it's not carried on winning ever since. With that in mind, what assumptions do you think people make or perhaps preconceptions that they have about the growth of Christianity in this particular period you're looking at? I think the biggest preconception about the growth of Christianity is that people think they know what it is. And they use this noun, Christianity. It's a singular noun. Sounds like the one same thing. And in fact, academics do it too. They write about the arrival of Christianity as though it's very clear what Christianity is. And one of the main things that interests me in studying Christianity, and one of the main things I want to bring out, is how different Christianity has been in different eras. I mean, it's very different now to what it was in the past, but pre-Constantinian Christianity, before the Emperor Constantine becomes Christian, is very different from the kind of Christianity that evolves in the late Roman period, which is very different again from early medieval Christianity, and then the sort of high medieval Christianity, which is where the book finishes, uh, is different again. Now, of course, there are serious continuities between all of these eras. And without those continuities, you wouldn't have this thing called Christianity, you'd have a series of different things. But the religion is very different in important ways between these different eras. Uh, you know, it's virtually unrecognizable, apart from the fact they're all still reading the same holy texts. But everything else around it, that has changed. So I think that's the biggest assumption and that's the the, the biggest theme. I think most people who write about this tend to have some religious skin in the game. They tend to be believers, I think, and they're interested in the continuities. And that's utterly valid. They're, that's a crucial part of the story. But what interests me is how much Christianity changed across time and how different it is. To introduce our listeners to the subject, could you briefly explain what characterises the Christianity of each of these three parts that you've just mentioned? Up until the conversion of Constantine, Christianity is a small sect of very devout believers. Entry rules are very strict. It's a multi-year, multi-stage process. And baptism is of adults after uh, many years of initiation uh, in the final run-up to baptism, which always happened on Easter Sunday. You met with your exorcist, literally, every day for a couple of months. And baptism is viewed as a kind of one-off hit of cleansing. Uh, 
There are real arguments. They haven't resolved them in 300, but there are real arguments about whether serious sins can be forgiven after baptism. So if you sin after baptism, that might be it. And the vision is that very few people are going to go to heaven. The standards required of people are very strict. And that, of course, matches up with the entry rules. In the late Roman period, that starts to change as we see Christianity becoming a mass religion for the first time. It's still not a particularly mass mass religion in the sense that uh, 85 to 90% of everyone in the late Roman Empire is a peasant of one kind or another. And Christianity is not developing yet comprehensive structures and ways of bringing itself to the mass of the rural population. Uh, that That's a, a medieval phenomenon. In fact, the sort of building of rural churches and the uh, development of priests out in the countryside on a regular basis, all of that happens later. But Christianity does become much bigger in percentage terms, particularly in urban populations and in the life of the politically enfranchised elites of the Roman Empire. And that forces it to change because actually the kinds of standards that Christianity, behavioural standards, the early Christianity is enforcing, won't work with these kinds of people who are rich um, and live quite worldly lives. Uh, In particular, early Christianity was very worried about money and it was very worried about sex. And if you're going to become a mass religion, then you have to make your peace in one way or another with both of these things because you will not get everyone or you will not get lots of people to give up both of those kind of very normal types of human activity sex i obviously mean marriage and children and normal life not you know wild debauchery we're not talking about that but you know the the kind of basic human drives towards having families and things so christianity uh, adjusts its behavioural standards. It has to adjust its behavioural standards. It also evolves new authority structures. The pre-Constantinian Christianity is a series of autonomous, self-running communities in various towns around the Mediterranean that are in periodic contact with one another. There is no authority structure. No one's in charge of Christianity. When you look at what happens in the late Roman period, you get a centralised authority structure for the first time within the Christian religion. And it's the Roman emperor, because the Roman emperor has the unique right to call large-scale councils where bishops, supposedly from every community within the empire, come together. The bishops make the formal decisions, but in practice, it's up to an emperor whether he calls a council. And he usually doesn't call a council unless he knows what answer he wants from it on some particularly crucial decision. So, you know, uh, emperors are firmly in charge and quarrels are fought out at the imperial court. These councils do other things and they're usually called for some kind of doctrinal issue, but they do other things as well on behaviour and whatever. So you actually see Christianity evolving into a much more coherent, organised mass religion with an authority structure for the first time. In the early medieval period, when the Roman Roman imperial system falls apart, then this authority structure disappears and Christianity starts to function on a kingdom-by-kingdom basis. Kings of the successor states inherit the religious authority of Roman emperors, 
but there are lots of them. So there's not one person in charge. There's a series of regional churches with uh, royal rulers, and the bishops of each kingdom run their own affairs. They keep an eye on what everyone else is doing. There's a sense of community, uh, but the authority structures are different. And it's actually in this era that we start to see Christianity being stretched out into the countryside to reach um, the sort of mass of the peasantry, uh, certainly in Western Europe, certainly in the non-Mediterranean regions. But to do that, you have to change behavioural standards again. So entry rules, infant baptism, little bit of confirmation, maximum 20 days instruction. None of this multi-year, multi-stage nonsense with multiple meetings with exorcists. What are you requiring people to do? Well, we haven't built a lot of churches yet. You can't expect them to go to church every Sunday. We're not doing that. Maybe the major festivals, though some people are too far away for that as well, they're required to learn the Lord's Prayer and the shortest of the creeds as kind of religious mantras. They're told to live good lives in a very undefined kind of way. What is a good life? You know, we're starting to think that maybe lots of people go to heaven rather than just a few people go to heaven. Uh, but we're making the kind of Christian, Christianity that peasants need. Well, what do peasants need from their religion? They need cultic practices that are focused on making bloody crops grow. Because these are people who are living on the margin in a way that we can't really comprehend their their lives are much poorer and who face death pretty much all the time you know people die young you lose a lot of your children uh you know it's a pretty grim world and it's also in this era as a lot of uh wonderful work has shown that christianity acquires saints cults because saints cults are about miracles and I think the really weird thing about miracles, because we think, oh, superstitious rubbish, is actually what it expresses is a desire and a belief that the universe is rational. If you behave well and approach the right source of power, good things will happen. If you behave badly um, or fail to approach the right source of supernatural assistance, things will go wrong. So it's a a very human desire, I think, that the the universe should be a rational place, that you get rewarded if life is good, you know, if you behave well, and that if you modify your behaviour because bad things are happening and do the right thing, then things will get better. So Christianity acquires saints cults for the first time, really in the 6th century. It hadn't been there, you know, this sense of the miraculous and cures. Uh, I mean, it's all about health and death and all the other things that you would expect it to be about. And it's in the 6th century, as we're starting to reach out to these peasant audiences, that uh, that, that all appears. And then the, the sort of final era that I'm interested in takes all these strands and changes them again. And it, it, it sort of starts with the Emperor Charlemagne, because he reunites most of uh, Latin Christian world. I mean, everything except Britain and Britain so small, it doesn't matter, you know. Uh, it's a minor sideshow. But everywhere else is under one imperial religious rule. And we start to see a series of religious reforms designed to restore the kind of coherence that had started to be there in the later Roman period and to develop it further. It's not just a question of going back, it's also developing. So you get uh, sort of strong ideologies 
that the, the central and key act of worship should be Holy Communion, the Mass, uh, and the Mass is articulated as a reenactment of the life of Christ. It's an incredibly holy event, and it should only take place in churches. So, you know, if you can only have Mass in churches, you need a lot more churches. So we start to see lots of churches built, and we start to see religious standards being pushed forward. The problem is that the Carolingian Empire lasts about 10 minutes, and then we go back to a multiplicity of kings again, none of whom has the authority over the whole of Latin Christendom. And this is where finally, and I think it's much later than most people would think, the papacy, as we understand it, as an overarching leadership structure for the Western Christian world, starts to be created. And it's created by consumer demand. All the churchmen who'd responded to the excitement of the Carolingian era want this centralised direction, but there are Europe is now run by a multiplicity of kings, princes and emperors, uh, none of whom rule that much, really. So they can't get everyone together in councils. So the papacy is created. It's invented by North European churchmen who want an alternative and lasting unified central authority that they can then push their religious reforms through. But the, but they're doing it for a purpose. They don't, you know, it's not just creating the papacy for no reason. Uh, they want to do things. And we get uh, a, a new standardization of what it means to be a good Christian and how you should behave. Uh, and this is the era that uh, the book finishes with, focusing on that, of, of which the key thing is that we suddenly work out what the afterlife looks like. It's extraordinary that it's not until the 12th century that a coherent Christian vision of the afterlife is fully articulated. And that's because what's in the holy books is a bit messy. It tells you that some people go to heaven or hell immediately, but there's also a day of judgment. So where is everybody else, you know, until the day of judgment happens? They're hanging around somewhere. Um, it's only in the 12th century that the Parisian theologians at the new University of Paris plump for purgatory as a third place. So there's heaven, there's hell, and there's purgatory in between. And most people end up in purgatory. And this becomes the key device for articulating a new vision of what it means to be a good Christian. Because what a good Christian does, with a bit of help from their friends and loved ones, is slowly navigate their way across purgatory and eventually into heaven by a whole series of pious acts. So you have to start defining the Punishment for sin, how many years, I mean, is it a hell sin or is it a purgatory sin? And if it's a purgatory sin, how many years in purgatory is it? And a good act, does that get you out of hell and into purgatory? Mm, so that's quite tricky, but it can knock off a lot of years in purgatory. So we start to see a whole, what's called economy of salvation, where sins have a tariff of penalty, and it's usually years in purgatory, and good acts do the opposite, knock years off purgatory, and you can find your way through. And that becomes the way in which Western, Central European Christianity is organised in the high medieval period around this vision. And, you know, that's so... Uh, lots of people are going to get to heaven, it's, it's going to be rough through purgatory. It's so completely different from the pre-Constantinian Christian vision of a small um, self-selecting group of people who have to live perfect lives now and only a very few of whom, even I think from within the Christian community, would 
would be the vision. Only very few of them will get to heaven ever, you know. Whereas now we're thinking lots of people can get there, but it's going to be rough on the way there. So there's lots of behavioural, theological and structural changes that happen over this time. Exactly so. And what I'm trying to do is knit together exactly those three things, the doctrinal, the structural and the behavioural. A friend of mine who uh, studies the history of religion in the ancient world, um, and I, I think he's a Christian believer in the modern world too, but he says, you know, religion isn't really about beliefs, it's about practice, it's what you do. That's the right way to think about it. That's what you should think about. I mean, if you confront people, they're often a bit woolly on beliefs, but they know what they do. They know how they practice it. What I'm trying to set up is the evolving three-way relationship between doctrine, between structures, and between practice. So that, for instance, you can't define Christian orthodoxy, right Christian belief, until you've got an institutional authority structure which has the right to say what it is. If in the early period you've got lots of autonomous um, city congregations, which you do have around the Mediterranean, then who's to say which one of them has the authority to say that something is right or something is wrong? So you get a, a strong tolerated range of belief. I mean, there are, all of them recognise a few people as totally out beyond the pale, but the acceptable is quite wide. In the late Roman era, is a crucial moment of doctrinal formation in the sense of things like the Trinity start to emerge in fully articulated form. They can't do that until you've got an authority structure that can say, yes, this is the right view of uh, the Trinity and this is a wrong view of the Trinity. Because again, the evidence in the New Testament is not definitive, it doesn't tell you. It mentions God the Father, Jesus is obviously there, and the Holy Spirit gets a bit of a walk-on part, but how those three are going to be articulated is, is not set out in the New Testament. You have to do it on the basis of particular readings of the text, experience, etc. So, uh, But then once you've defined it, that then says you've got to believe this, and you start to develop liturgical materials, things you say in church services, like the creed, um, which actually articulates the vision of the Trinity that you've decided is correct. Um, or again, in, in the late period, later period, uh, you can use the papacy to define and sanctify this vision of uh, Christian piety centred around purgatory and the need to pay off sin. Uh, but you can't deliver that across Western Europe until you've got churches and priests in every uh, in every well basically in every village I mean in medieval England there was something like 15,000 parishes so that's 15,000 churches 15,000 priests and the priests have to know what they're talking about and they've got to have the books you know this is not a small infrastructure um, so again uh, institutional change, the emergence of papal authority, uh, new beliefs, purgatory, uh, and then the, the practical delivery, well, purgatory and churches, and then the delivery of that into a new vision of parish piety, which is what um, uh, we then see people trying to do in the 13th century. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
and a little earlier actually, more more like 700, 710. You have to be Muslim to succeed in a Muslim world. And the elites of the southern and eastern Mediterranean, who all previously been all these provided all these Christian thinkers, they turned to Islam. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. As we've been speaking, you've sort of suggested that the rise or growth of Christianity in Europe isn't something that's necessarily inevitable. I think we've sort of busted that myth. So what were the tick boxes of success, would you say, that allowed Christianity to flourish when perhaps other religions didn't? There's a whole series of uh, things that come together, I think. One is the absolute capacity to maintain a facade of continuity while changing pretty much everything underneath. Uh, so it allows a sort of uh, continuous living institution to grow. So what you see in each era is that every time a, a new and specific block of converts are added in, Christianity makes adjustments to make itself livable for those converts. So in the late Roman period, we get mass elite transformation. Well, what are late Roman elites all about? They're about Greco-Roman philosophy and culture. And we find Christianity making its peace and incorporating substantial elements of Greco-Roman philosophy and culture into itself. In the early Middle Ages, well, we've got peasantry and we get miracles, as mentioned, but we also then are spreading to elites like Anglo-Saxons or Irish or Franks who are deeply military. And, you know, that ought to be a problem. You know, one of the things <laughs> Christ says in the New Testament is turn the other cheek. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, slice someone up out of a good sense of honour to show that you're a, a man, you know. It doesn't say that. Uh, it should be a problem. It's much less of a problem in practice than it ought to be in theory. And Christianity finds a way to accommodate warriors. I mean, the problem for warriors is you know you're going to die sometime. The problem is to die with honour, not to be disgraced. Uh, a lot of warrior culture is about that because, you know, you're about to be sliced into salami by someone coming at you with a piece of iron 
the only human natural human reaction is to go the other way but you're not meant to that's not what you're supposed to do you die with honor rather than fleeing and in a sense dying with honor and dying in a state of grace become equated there's also the thing that warriors want to be remembered memory is a crucial thing in warrior societies and christianity brings along writing and also brings along new ways of thinking about honor and thinking about glory there are times when my own stupidity amazes me i taught uh, stuffed from bead you know about anglo-saxons in the seventh century for years before i really twigged what was going on uh, one of his great heroes is oswald king of northumbria who wins one great battle over combined pagan and christian enemies pretty much on the line of Hadrian Wall, and then gets sliced into pieces at another one just about two years later, killed by the then pagan king of Mercia, Penda. And that, on the other, when you start thinking about it, how can he be a Christian hero if he loses so badly to a pagan king? But actually, Bede follows the account of his death with seven chapters of miracles accomplished by his remains, uh, after his death, and, and <laughs> they were separated. Penda did a job on Oswald's body. There's a spare head in the tomb of St Cuthbert in Durham, which might be Oswald's. No one's really tested it. It's supposed to be Oswald's, and it really could be, because the rest of him is all over the place, literally. Um, so, But that's a total different kind of glory. Uh, it's, exactly, it's exactly analogous to uh, when Darth Vader strikes down Obi-Wan Kenobi, and says, if you kill me, I'll just be more powerful than you can ever imagine. Oswald lives on after death because he died a Christian hero and his miracles then, uh, uh, his miraculous powers are accessible to so many people subsequently. So Christianity, one of the key things, I think, is this adaptability. But there's no doubt, too, that its relationship with power is very important. You can show it from the inverse, as well as positively. What I mean by the inverse is that um, in the late Roman period, the sort of beating heart of Christianity uh, is actually Eastern and Southern Mediterranean. All the great thinkers, all the people who are contributing to the major debates on doctrine, behavior, all the rest of it, North Africa, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Asia Minor, Apart from Rome, that's where all the old Christian communities were set up, naturally enough. I mean, it started in Palestine. So all the churches, the big cathedrals, the libraries, you name it, most of the serious stuff is done in the eastern and southern Mediterranean. Seventh century, Islamic conquest swallows that up. And actually, within a century or so, it becomes crucial to be Muslim to uh, succeed in the Islamic Empire, there's a hundred years where it's not, but from about about 750 onwards, a little earlier actually, more more like 700, 710, you have to be Muslim to succeed in a Muslim world, and the elites of the southern and eastern Mediterranean, who all previously been all these provided all these Christian thinkers, they turn to Islam, and I think there's a, a kind of there's a real vulnerability amongst elites when cultural change is linked to a political system because you've got so much to lose. So, I mean, it's exactly the same as when Henry VIII becomes Protestant. The landed gentry 
en masse. Not all, there are always some exceptions, but the mass of the landed gentry happily follow the royal settlements in the 16th century. And they do so because that's the only way to secure their status. And, you know, it's not just them as individuals, their families, it's their children, it's everybody they love. It's the only way to secure that for a new era. And that's it's exactly analogous, I think, in the southern eastern Mediterranean. And it was also the case in the late Roman Empire, more positively, when you get a run of Christian emperors. And, and you can see it's a bit similar to the Islamic world in that you don't need to become Christian to succeed absolutely in the first 50 years or so of the Christian empire. But the perception soon gets out there that your chances of success are just that little bit better if you become Christian. And we start to see people moving in large numbers. Unless you're really, really wedded to the previous pagan culture, which a few people are, you know, there's always some people who won't convert. But, uh, you know, if the new religion, which is where the adaptability comes in, takes on a little bit of the kind of Greco-Roman cultural clothing, enough to make you feel comfortable, then you go with it. So this kind of adaptability attaching itself to a political structure is then a very potent force. When you get into non-elite conversion, then the alliance between elites and states becomes more potent still. There are early medieval councils. I mean, they're not just inventing miracles to attract early medieval medieval peasants. They're also saying, as long as you don't kill them, it's all right to beat them if they won't become Christian. Uh, And you can certainly put up their rents. That's perfectly all right. If you've got uh, pagan peasants who won't have any of it, then, you know, charge them a bit more. That's fine. So again, you're you're using force. And there is a a kind of uh, explicit and implicit application of force throughout the story that I'm interested in, which in the later period then manifests itself in the nastiest end at the Inquisition, uh, and it's seriously nasty, Um, but even down in the sort of um, parish level, there's a, the implementation of the new papal vision of what parish church life should be like, um, the the purgatory-oriented patterns of piety, uh, that produces a new form of inspection where people go around and look at what's happening in local parishes. Uh, the documents were meant to be destroyed, but a few survive. And again, they've been studied more intensively again uh, recently. In fact, I've used them for teaching since the 1990s because they are amazing. And you find what those show is two things. There's a particularly nice group from Kent, from the Romney Marsh era in Kent in the 1290s. And they show, first of all, that people are trying to enforce these centralised standards set from Rome with some determination. And, you know, that's new. But they they also show there's lots of implicit uh, resistance to it. People aren't looking after their churches. There is, you won't be wildly surprised to know, a fair amount of sexual impropriety going on. Uh, You know, the rules are not being obeyed, nor are they all attending mass when they should attend mass. You know, it's all this kind of thing. But there is a culture of informing. 
we know about these intimate details. The only reason we can know about these intimate details is if someone else in the village is telling us. And actually, there's a, a group of self-appointed senior peasants who tell the church inspectors about any infractions they know about. And then there's an enforcement mechanism. So if you're caught and judged to have disobeyed the rules, they do various things to you. One thing is beating you about the church. So they walk you around the church and thump you. The other is that they beat you around the local marketplace or local marketplaces. So it's public, humiliating, really uh, unpleasant. But uh, you can see the... I mean, it's it's low-level and trivial. It's not like burning people alive, which is what's been happening to designated heretics in uh, southern France in the same kind of era. They're not doing that. But they are using a culture of informing and public humiliation with the occasional application of lower-level corporal punishment to make people come into line. To sort of wrap up this very brief introduction to such a long history, what would you like listeners to take away from this episode? Not a bad way to put it back together, actually, uh, and to think about the whole thing. Um, It's a family story, which I love. And my father, my grandfather, my father's father, became a professional soldier just before World War I. He'd been brought up a Catholic, but was an agnostic. So he turns up on the first Sunday and they say, what are you? He says he's an agnostic. So they send him off to clean the toilets. The next Sunday, by the next Sunday, he rapidly converted to the Church of England, uh, supposedly, as he put it, because he didn't like the agnostic's place of worship. Now, uh, that's in an era where everyone's supposed to be a Christian of one kind or another. And it's odd not to be. Uh, it's deviant not to be some kind of a Christian. And it's that kind of era in which the old total histories of Christianity are being written, the the first scientific ones, because, you know, uh, you've got properly critical historians thinking in serious ways about Christianity. But at that point, it's still absolutely normal and normative to be Christian, uh, hence my grandfather's experience. But we're in a different. We're looking at it from a different perspective now, and I think if you look at it from this dis- different perspective, the things that jump out at you are Christianity could lose. It did lose in the southern eastern Mediterranean to Islam. You know that should be the heart. Christianity shouldn't be a European phenomenon. It's only a European phenomenon because of the rise of Islam. Otherwise, it wouldn't be. Christianity won by adapting itself over time, to hold different set of religious consumers, lots of people with different agendas. And it transformed itself in the ways that we've been talking about in order to do that. But it also transformed itself in relationship to sufficient political authority and social authority, then to apply force as well. And the creation of this structure required application of a great deal of explicit and sometimes implicit force. You know, cleaning the toilets is implicit force rather than explicit force. And I think what you're left with is the realisation that in that medieval manifestation, you're looking at a type of one-party state, actually. This is a type of one-party state. You only get monolithic cultural conformity when a lot of force of 
at different levels, some of it trivial, some of it really nasty, is all being applied in the same direction. And in a sense, it's no surprise that subsequently Christianity has developed in a whole different set of ways and you get lots of different Christianities because you will only get that kind of monolithic uh, Latin Christianity of the 13th century where huge amounts of force are being applied. It's a very arthritic form of one-party state. It's not a very efficient one, but it is a type of one-party state. That was Peter Heather. His new book, Christendom, The Triumph of a Religion, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.